Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're looking at the business of sport and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Michael O'Keefe. Michael, you're very welcome. Thank you, Kieran. Now, just before we begin the serious business of this podcast, let me remind you that next Tuesday at 7pm we'll be recording our podcast in front of a live audience at the headquarters of our sponsor Irish Life in Dublin City Centre. The topic will be how to solve Ireland's pension problem and joining me to tease this out will be David Harney, Irish Life Chief Executive, our own columnist Chris Johns and policy expert Dr Laura Bambrick of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. We have a few tickets left and to be in with a chance of getting a pair, just send an email to businesspodcast at irishtimes.com. Now, back to the serious stuff of this week. Later in the show, we'll be talking to Malcolm Booth, Director of Sales and Marketing at the RNA, about preparations for the Open Championship Golf Major, which will this year be held at Port Rush in County Antrim in July. The eyes of the world will be on the tiny coastal resort in Northern Ireland as the world's best golfers do battle for the claret jug. And Malcolm will tell us about the RNA's preparations and the challenges of handling a quarter of a million golf fans in a small seaside resort. Uh, but first, we're going to do our usual roundup of some of the main issues of the Sporting Week. And uh, Michael, take it away. We're going to start with the GA's finances, the annual report just released today. Yeah, so the GA numbers are out today and they're always interesting reading and, and, and you know, in fairness to GA, they're always very transparent and well laid out, so you can have a good look at, at what's up and what's down. Um, you know, on the surface of it, it it's it's fairly flat. Um, and you know, like all these things, when you look at them in more detail, you start to to, to read the real the real uh, story. So, you know, on one side, gate receipts are down fourteen percent year on year, which would look on the surface of it quite significant. Um, on the other hand, commercial revenue is up. Um, and it's up, it's up quite significantly as well. Um, when you look well, at the uh, game receipts, now are important. That's bums on seats. That's people actually choosing to go to the games live. And there's obviously quite a significant drop there. Well, the gate receipts are, are are the lifeblood of the GA, and and almost half the revenue of the GA comes from attendances. Um, the attendances and and the gate receipts that are recorded refer to the leagues, the Allianz leagues, and also to the uh, GA Championship stages. So they don't actually refer to the provincial council run games. So things like the round robin and hurling in Munster would not have come under these uh, these figures. The numbers are down. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, one would be the the lack of replays. Um, 2017 saw a number of high-profile replays. 2018, there was only really one high-profile replay. There has been a certain amount of 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 of, of 
criticism on the one hand, but also, I suppose, um, critique around the season being condensed in order to give clubs more time. So what that has done is it's pushed a lot of games closer together. Um, in July and August and I suppose that is a challenge to see how the GEA promotes games and, and ensures that more people attend the matches you recall the, the Dublin Galway example was the, the big one last year where in region 52,000 I think turned up for the Dublin Galway match would seem on the surface of a quite a low attendance for an All-Ireland semi-final that was put down to the to the time of the year that that game was was on and also Galway involved in the latter stages of, of the Hurling Championship so and the fact that most people expected Dublin to win comfortably but Quite possibly, and and you know that's that's a separate kind of issue. I think in terms of but does it signal that the super eights, for example, were a bit of a damp squib attendance wise, a bit of a damp squib? I I, I don't think so. I, I I think for year one, I think the super eights were a success. I think you have a unique situation in football where you had a very dominant team last year. Um, I, I think where the super eights really sing is where Kerry going to Clonus. Um, Games going to 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 Galway City, uh, and the more of that, the better for a whole heap of reasons. One is you get thirty five thousand in a provincial venue; it's packed. The low benefit to local economy. You know, Dublin doesn't need all these matches, so you know the more games outside. I, think I recall I watched the Monaghan uh, Kerry game held in Clones, and there were huge open spaces on the terraces. It's a big, it's a big ground, and you know, you put thirty thousand people in there. Um, you know, there might still be a few gaps, but I, I, I think in general, I think those games were pretty well attended. I think where the challenge comes is at the latter end of the championship um, and the, the, the timing of the matches in August is a challenge and I think it's something that's going to have to be teased through I think when you bring it forward that much um, it's a challenge to put 80,000 people in there um, Hurling was a rip-roaring success last year I think they had a, you know probably on record the best championship ever and in saying that, you know, some of the numbers didn't reflect it because they just didn't get those two or three big high-profile replays. And as we said, the success of the Munster round robin in particular, um, you know, where you had decent attendances at those games and much more games um, didn't translate into into bottom line for the GA in terms of these figures. And overall revenue down 1%. Yeah, so kind of flat. You know, if you look at 63.5 million as the, as the revenue, um, where does that come from? 46% is gates and attendance, as we said, and that really shows how important the matches are and how important it is for the GA to have a fantastic product. Um, 31% come from commercial revenue, which is a very large number. It's in the region of 20 million, so that's pure sponsorship, broadcast rights revenue and so forth. 13% comes from the stadium, and we had Peter McKenna here previous the stadium involves also things like the hotel and other places. Um, and 8% came from grants, primarily um, Sport Ireland and so forth, other grants that would go into the coffers of the GA for things like participation and and, and and so forth. So, um, you know, it's 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 an interesting mix of revenue. It would be very different to the likes of the FAI and and and, and IRFU. Um, and I think where it becomes you know really different is where the money actually goes and where the money spent. So, only seventeen percent spend on direct costs or, or administrative and, and kind of staff costs, and the rest, the kind of eighty three percent, is distributed around the GA, vis a vis clubs, infrastructure development, county boards, that kind of stuff. Now, huge focus recently on the overspend and building costs on Parky Cueve yeah. and uh, Cork. Any mention of that? No, it, um, the the DG was had, had spoken about this, and, and and you know it's been something that um, has been talked about by the president, and and, and it's a major issue in terms. So just to of, remind listeners, I suppose. So Parky Cueve, the, the overspend on, on Parky Cueve, which which has been quite significant, and and um, yes, we're talking about Peter McKenna has said up to one hundred and ten million euro, yeah, and the original uh, cost, well, not the original, but the revised cost was put at eighty million euro, yeah. 
so you know the, the Cork the, the view was that Cork needed a, a state of the art new stadium they picked Parky Cueve the old site and they, they redeveloped on it look there's issues with the pitch but they're separate it's, it's, it's always been a poor pitch in winter time and they need to get that right but the overspend has come as, as, as a surprise I think um, as, as an infrastructure development it's quite a significant a shock would be a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, yeah, a, a shock perhaps and, and I think you know when it, the direct question that you asked me in terms of these figures don't reflect that um, uh, the, the, the GA is not showing in these numbers uh, money that's been diverted in order to pay for that overspend. There is, I think, a, 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 an ongoing investigation, what a better way of saying it, a review into into how that overspend happened and then obviously they'll have to discuss how that's... How that's and the GA has, has taken direct control of the running of uh, Parky Cueve to try and sort out the mess. It, it has now, yeah. All right. Um, okay, let's talk about uh, Sport Ireland. It's announced a 31.8 million euro investment in governing bodies around the country, high performance programmes and athletes and local sports partnerships. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Sport Ireland have been, have been challenged um, in the last decade with fairly flat funding from government. Um, you know, when 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 we had the recession and, and, and subsequent years of austerity and other things, sports funding was hit um, and sports funding was very stagnant for a long time. And, you know, now we've seen for the first time in a decade uh, the purse strings have been, I suppose, loosened and a, a five million increase and a fairly significant increase overall in, in funding. Mm. Um, and I think there's a couple of interesting things in this, you know, and it's split in kind of three ways. The national governing body, so the likes of Athletics Ireland, Babington Ireland and boxing and all that kind of stuff, um, they've had an increase in funding and a, and a pretty significant one of, of, of two million. What about hockey? The the women famously won the silver medal. At yeah, the hockey football hockey football have year. had a big injection of... of they were promised of, extra funding, any of it? Through yeah, this? they have and, and there, there's numbers on that and they've also, um, there is a new facility been built um, which is going to have a major long-term effect. There's a state-of-the-art pitch um, which has um, been constructed at the moment out in Abbottstown which is going to become the new base of Irish hockey um, and money has been put aside for the elite side but also Irish hockey has also got a significant so there's the, the Irish Hockey Association but then there's the elite side as well in terms of the high performance which would be the two teams the men and women's team which are trying to qualify for, for the next uh, Olympics in Tokyo um, and also facilities piece as well so hockey has done uh, quite well um, and there are others the local sport partnerships more look at things like diversity inclusion you know um, and and putting money into into grassroots and then high performance programs are also those kind of specific ones like we spoke about in terms of hockey or boxing and then you have the money that goes directly to athletes which they have this kind of famous carding scheme where people are ranked in terms of their I suppose status internationally and where they come and then they're given grants that match that that status so the highest grant would be €40,000 the likes of say Kelly Harrington or Thomas Barr or those people who are competing at the very peak of international competition and you know would be deemed to be medal prospects finalist prospects that kind of stuff and then it goes down to 20, 10 and so forth um, so there has been an increase in funding for them as well I think the important thing to note and this is a big change and it's kind of in the detail a bit but is that the Sport uh, Sport Ireland has promised um, and and uh, pledged that they will take a two-year view on funding this year and not one. So normally it's done on a 12-month basis so now they're doing on a 24-month basis. For the athletes? For the athletes, yeah. Sorry, I should have made it. So for the athletes, so yeah. the athlete can take a view that, you know, obviously these they're, they're reviewed at the end of the year but, you know, that they're, they're promised and pledged that funding for two years so they can actually make decisions on a 24-month basis. Sure, so if they have a bad year if they're injured or something like that, their funding doesn't uh, get cut off. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, now let's talk about the Six Nations. Uh, last uh, kicked off last week, uh, now sponsored by Guinness. 
Unfortunately, bad start for Ireland. Well and truly beaten at home by England. But yeah. uh, Tineo PSG, your company has done some research on the impact, the economic impact that the England fans made on their visit to Dublin. Yeah, and look, it's it's something that we've discussed, and there are other numbers that do, that do the rounds. And you know, we we looked at what was best practice in terms of trying to get a definitive number that we could stand over. And um, you know, one number that you can absolutely look at is the the economic impact. Uh, of the travelling support because it's very difficult to say and there's a whole lot of variables when you look at the economic impact for the area because it depends on the result of the match the weather the time of the game all those kind of things and the pubs in Dublin are kind of full anyway on a Saturday night as are the hotels and planes and all that kind of stuff so we looked at a very narrow scope of research here Karen, which was you know um, if there were 15,000 English fans that travelled to Dublin specifically for the match outside of their ticket the flight and, and the hotel, how much did they spend, so actual spend into the local economy. Uh, and it was quite interesting and, and most English fans um, stayed for a couple of nights, some stayed for three, but the, the most popular amount of time to stay was two. Um, there was an average spend of 639.45 exactly. So it gives you an indication and maybe some people were even you know calling that What down. does that include or exclude? It's that includes uh, drink, food, uh, and everything else you have in yourself. What it doesn't include is the match ticket, uh, travel, and accommodation or corporate hospitality. So it's quite a narrow um, uh, thing. So, so they arrived here with a ticket they in would have spent a couple, and they're spending the extra money. They they're spending two or three hundred quid a day. Spent. Basically, is what they're doing, and this, the methodology used was face to face. Points or. Restaurants well, Dublin is expensive, so <laughs> obviously, so um, it's a lot of money to spend in a couple of days without it is. In accommodation. Well, well the, the English fans have have a reputation for being uh, the best fans from an Irish perspective in terms of they tend to spend, yeah. they tend to stay in quite expensive hotels, they eat in nice restaurants, and they tend to, to to stay a couple of nights and eat and drink out all the time. So they're spending you know over a couple of hundred euro a day, which is a lot of money um, and a big boost to the local economy. Um, when we looked at where they stay. Um, most of them are staying in hotels, which is probably no surprise. Um, you know, things like B&B, Airbnb, apart hotels, a uh, big number there. And, you know, there is a number that obviously stay with friends and family, so there's no no boost there. But, you know, um, the, you know, I'd say what you can say with certainty is that there's a big spin for the local economy out of a match. Um, you know, hospitality is full, the stadium is full, the hotels are full. I think you could probably put a multiple on the number we have, um, which I haven't given yet, which is uh, just under 10 million at 9.6 million, which is the pure additional spend um, by English fans. If you add in hotels, um, you know, it's about 12.5 million. So it's a very significant number and you can probably put a multiple on that in terms of the overall economic impact for Dublin. You know, people have quoted numbers like 50 and 60 million, which I'd say are probably pretty accurate when you look at the overall spend for, and that includes obviously Irish people going out and spending maybe what they wouldn't have spent otherwise. Okay, we have the French coming later in yep. the championship to Ireland. Would you expect them to spend as much or a bit less or... I, I would I would say probably significantly less. I'd say um, they won't travel in the same numbers. Um, you know the the corporate thing is is less. Um, you know obviously they, there's a big corporate hospitality element to this. But you know when you consider that you know a third or so of of corporate hospitality in the Viva on the weekend would have been English booked and based. That's a very significant number. Um, and English rugby is it's quite a corporate thing. So um, it's a slightly different audience. I would say if we'd, you know, four or 5,000 French in, in town for for that match, I think we'd be doing well. The fact they're not doing particularly well probably doesn't help. But um, Indeed, well, they were doing very, very well in the first half well against until, Wales. Until but, the 60th minute uh, or 70th, the, 70th the minute. But um, no, I wouldn't expect them to travel in the same numbers. Um, I would say um, the English are by far and away the best travelling support in terms of the size of numbers. The Scots travel in big numbers too. Um, and then, you know, t- take it from there. 
Okay, Mick, thanks for that uh, roundup. We're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be joined by Malcolm Booth, Director of Sales and Marketing at the RNA, and he'll be talking about preparations at Royal Port Rush in County Antrim, which will this year host the Open Championship Golf Major. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. You can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, this week we're dealing with the business of sport and in July, the world's best golfers will arrive at Royal Port Rush in Northern Ireland for the 148th Open Championship, one of golf's four majors. Some quarter of a million spectators are expected over the four days of play, while hundreds of millions globally will tune into coverage of the tournament. It's a huge honour for Portrush, but it also presents huge logistical challenges for the Seaside Resort and its organisers, the Royal and Ancient. And joining us on the line now to discuss preparations for the event is Malcolm Booth, Director of Sales and Marketing at the RNA. Malcolm, uh, thank you for joining us. That's a pleasure. Uh, so, I suppose, first of all, just tell us why Port Rush, because you have a long uh, list of courses in England and Scotland who are very well versed in hosting the uh, the Open Championship, and they have great facilities, and obviously fans are very, very well used to them. But you've taken this decision to bring the tournament to Northern Ireland for, I think, the first time in 68 years, and Port Rush is a small place, so it's going to present a lot of challenges. So why Port Rush in the first place? Sure. Well, as you say, um, we were we were in Port Rush, you know, a long time ago now, back in 1951, and um, so to, to to that end, we're very much returning rather than uh, visiting the venue for the first time, albeit it has been 68 years. Um, what started to happen, um, sort of in the second half of the last decade, was that. Um, the Irish golfers really became amongst the most prominent in the world. Podrick Harrington um, broke an eight-year um, an eight-year majors curse by winning the Open at Carnoustie and then and following it up with a win at Birkdale the following year. Graham McDowell then went on to win the U.S. Open in 2010 at Pebble Beach, and then Rory started to really dominate golf for several years and and won the U.S. Open the following year at Congressional. And then Darren Clark that same year won at Royal St. George's. So we went from having had, you know, no Irish players um, really, you know, doing much in major championship golf to all of a sudden um, having a, a clutch of Irish players all winning majors within a few years. And around that time, there just started to be more and more of a groundswell to say, why can't we take the Open back to, to Royal Port Rush? Uh, and really, that was the impetus that um, set things in train. So tell us about the logistics of hosting it in, in somewhere like Portrush, because it is a small seaside resort. Well it, well, it is, but then most of the venues that we go to, or probably half of the venues that we go to, are in similarly small seaside resorts. Um, we have all sorts of challenges wherever we go, because we always play the Open on a Lynx golf course. It means that um, there's always sea on... Uh, on one side of the venue, and therefore we we only ever have uh, limited routes into the venue. And depending on whereabouts in in the UK we are, um, you know that can be more or less challenging. And certainly, 
Uh, while Portrush is a challenging venue from that perspective, it's, it's not so different from, from other venues that we have on the rota. Uh, Turnbury springs to mind in the southwest of Scotland. Um, Royal St George's, where we'll be in 2020, um, while it's in the southeast of England, is, is right over on the, the southeast coast uh, in Kent, and again, is reasonably challenging to access. So we've got a lot of experience in uh, taking the championship to these harder-to-reach venues. And where are you at in terms of logistics? I mean, still five months to go to the championship. You don't know precisely what the lineup of golfers will be, although all of the top players, I'm sure, will be there. But just from your end, uh, what's left to do? Well, the build will start fairly soon. Um, we would typically start the build at the venue uh, in either March or April. And then there are um, several months of, of erecting what is essentially a small town uh, on a golf course and the transformation is always quite extraordinary. You go from, you know, a Lynx golf course, which by its nature, because there are no trees and things, can be quite a f- sort of flat, stark landscape, to all of a sudden something that really has huge scale and feels, you know, like a global sporting <clears throat> event. And, and all of that happens in the, in the space of about four or five months. So the build will start... Um, We'll start in either March or April, and, uh, and very quickly, uh, people local to Portrush will see grandstands being built. Um, soon after that, tents will start to get built. So, you know, six or seven years of planning uh, will now all uh, materialise in the space of four or five months in the build-up to July. Malcolm, um, just can you give us an indication of, of the kind of numbers that are expected to, to descend on, on Portrush and where those people are going to come from vis-a-vis people from the north, south of Ireland, um, UK and, and, and rest of the world? Yeah, absolutely. We'll, we'll see around um, a third of the people there coming from the island of Ireland with probably about 40% coming from Northern Ireland and about 25% coming from the Republic of Ireland. So it's being incredibly well supported from the, the island of Ireland. But then further afield, we'll, we'll see strong attendance from, from England. There's about 15% of the crowd will come over from, from England. And then there'll be really great representation from the rest of the world, particularly North America, which always has strong ties to our championship, uh, to the sport of golf, but obviously to Ireland as well. Um, so we will see a very strong contingent from both the United States and Canada making their way over to, um, to enjoy the festivities in July. And in terms of the, the costs associated with um, with hosting, um, how much support do you get from you know, the state, so to speak, and, and say things like Northern Irish tourism and stuff like that? And and also, you know, for context for for listeners, um, does the course, you know, the application process, do they have to underwrite some of the costs? How much do they have to put forward in in, in order to host host the, the the Open? Well, the arrangements that we have with both um, both the sort of national governments and the uh, local authorities to the the championships that we go to vary from year to year, and and we don't tend to make you know those public, but we're being incredibly well supported by the Northern Irish Assembly, uh, you know through Tourism Northern Ireland, and um, you know both in terms of a financial contribution, but extensive on the ground support in Northern Ireland. Um, we have been working closely in consort with them for uh, since about 2014 when we made the announcement we were going back to Portrush and um, it's been a very strong working relationship ever since. And can you talk to us too just in terms of some of the other numbers around um, media that are going to attend, kind of the, the, the broadcast, how that's split up and the kind of numbers of countries and the reach that this is going to have because this is obviously a huge showcase for, for that part of the Antrim coast and for, and for the island of Ireland as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it always um, 
you know, never ceases to amaze, really, that they're just the scale of the coverage that the Open generates. So it'll be broadcast into more than 600 million homes around the world. Um, we will have nearly 500 journalists on site. There will be around 200 photographers. Uh, I'll be supported with, you know, an additional thousand television um, and, and broadcast teams that uh, support the, the broadcast going out around the world. Um, the, just on our own website, we'll see somewhere in the region of 8 to 10 million unique visitors um, visiting the, the open.com during the, uh, during the week of the championship. Um, so the, the reach is absolutely enormous. Malcolm, can I just ask you where people are going to stay? Because there uh, wouldn't be too many hotels in the vicinity of Port Russian. I appreciate that things have changed in the hospitality industry over the last few years. We have Airbnb and, and so forth. But where do you expect the majority of people to stay? I think that we, we know that um, through across Northern Ireland and even, and even beyond, um, there, there is a, you know, a reasonable level of, of hotel accommodation. You know, coming back to what I said at the start, that's a challenge that we face probably more years than, than we don't. Uh, it's only really when we go to the northwest of England that we uh, tend to be, northwest of England and then St Andrews, where we'll be in 2021, where we have a, a kind of bounty of hotels that um, make it very easy for people to, to find accommodation. Most other places that we go, it can be a little bit more challenging. Um, and that's, that's very typical for us. So um, we know that people will happily stay as far away as Belfast. It's only about an hour and 15 minutes on the road to get from there to, to Port Rush. Um, some people, I think, will, will stay as far uh, south as Dublin and, and make that journey either on a daily basis or find kind of Airbnb accommodation that allows them to sort of travel up and stay one or two nights and then travel back. So it's, it's a logistical challenge that we always face. Um, we do provide a service to, to try and solve that for, for people through a, a website called stayattheopen.com. But also people are incredibly resourceful these days in finding their own accommodation. And one way or another, it always seems to work. Um, we do now build a campsite which uh, accommodates um, you know, up to 1,000 campers uh, per night and under 25s who attend the championship get to, to use that for free. Uh, and it's a pretty modest fee at just £40 per person for, for over 25s. So it's, it's right for, if anyone's you know, interested in camping all the way up to premium accommodation, it's all available. Um, the other way that we've managed to get around this over the years is by having um, a private uh, housing let. Uh, service available and again that's that's taken up um, fairly extensively so whether it's across um, hotel accommodation or private lets right down to a more basic standard of accommodation and camping there is there is a way to make sure that accommodation needs are taken care of Okay good to know Mick uh, 50 quid and we can have a tent on site <coughs> so you fixed We certainly wouldn't make the under 25 category anyway but uh, <laughs> A tent and a, and, a, and a bottle of bushmills and we'd be laughing for the week. Malcolm, what's, what's the likely economic impact uh, of this for the local economy? So, I mean, this should deliver upwards of uh, £80 million to the local economy um, and the economy of Northern Ireland. And um, that's through a combination of direct impact and also, um, you know, media exposure. And, um, you know, it, that, I think that's the reason why Tourism Northern Ireland and the Northern Ireland Assembly were so keen to get the championship back to Northern Ireland. And it will, it will deliver a real tangible benefit um, for, for the golf industry, not just in Northern Ireland, but uh, across the island of Ireland in its totality. Malcolm, just um, with respect to hospitality, I know it's been kind of a rip-roaring success so far. Can you, can you take us through how important that is from a revenue perspective and, 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 and how that model works? 
Well, yeah, from a revenue perspective, um, you know, our our revenue split into sort of event revenue and then revenue that's uh, booked years in advance through broadcast and sponsorship contracts. So every year the kind of variable revenue does come down to ticketing and, and hospitality. Tickets sold out within six weeks, which was totally unprecedented and, and something that really uh, signaled the level of excitement around um, this championship. And then hospitality, we had a, a sort of first wave of that that sold out almost as quickly. Um, and there was always a plan to introduce a second uh, phase of hospitality if the demand was there. So there is still the opportunity for people to to take that up. And, you know, clearly both across ticketing and hospitality, the the revenue that that generates um, is into the millions and it is crucial for um, what the RNA does with all of the, the profits from the Open Championship which go back into the sport of golf. What's the average price in terms of, of you know, people coming up for a, a day hospitality to, to, to the Open? So there's a range of products that range from sort of £200 per person up to um, up to nearer £1,000 per person. So there's, it's, there's a, a real uh, scaling of um, the, the hospitality experiences that we offer depending on uh, what people's requirements are. And uh, your tickets um, were £90. So, you know, the, the, all the way from a £90 general admission ticket for championship days up to a £1,000 premium hospitality experience everybody's catered for. Uh, Malcolm, no doubt uh, you've already sold some hospitality packages to Mick and to Neo. <laughs> Can you confirm that for us live on air? <laughs> yeah, this, it's just, that's, that's commercially actually. sensitive information, Malcolm. So, <laughs> <laughs> so just a quick one. Um, and, and look, I suppose you, you spoke about the, the importance of, of, of state support. Um, you know, we live in a, a tumultuous time without going down a, a pothole here of Brexit. But, you know, we don't have a functioning Stormont Assembly. Like, has that been a challenge in terms of your interaction locally with, with political stakeholders and also others involved um, in, in the tournament at, 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 at local level? No, it's, I mean, it's obviously a slightly unusual occurrence, but it hasn't had any material impact on, on the build-up to the championship. We are regularly in touch with um, contact across um, both Tourism Northern Ireland, but also the civil service in, in Northern Ireland. So we've been able to keep those lines of communication open and it hasn't had any real impact on uh, on our build-up. Brexit, which you allude to, is is a more... Uh, challenging threat because we simply don't know what the impact of that might be depending on, on how that rolls out. Um, we're obviously hopeful um, that clarity can be provided as soon as possible because to take a, a major championship that is usually staged in Scotland or England and um, stage it in Northern Ireland with the number of uh, heavy goods vehicles that will need to move over um, you know, through across the ferries either into, uh, into sort of the Dublin area or up near Belfast is a significant undertaking and understanding exactly what the lay of the land is going to be is crucial to, from that perspective. Malcolm, just a couple of weeks before the Open is hosted in Portrush, the Dubai duty-free Irish Open has been hosted in Le Hinch. Just wondering if there's any liaison uh, between the, the two tournaments, as it were, or do, you, do they operate completely independently of each other? Yeah, they, they operate fairly independently. Um, the, the Irish Open is obviously a European tour event, um, whereas we run uh, we run the Open wherever it's staged, um, we we know um, the team at the European Tour very well, and so the the dialogue there is always open. And I think 
you know, the, having it in Lahinch in the west of Ireland is probably ideal both for the success of the Irish Open but also for the success of the Open up at Portrush. You know, they're two pretty distinct parts of the country and I think that works in the best interest of both events. So I'm sure that the Irish Open will be a, you know, a really big success as it always is. And, you know, we would, we'd be delighted if people uh, do undertake to go to both championships. Um, but I'm sure that both will be very well attended, even if people uh, make a choice between one or the other. Yeah, just, just, just on that, I suppose. So, you know, obviously plans are underway for Le Hinch too. And John Gleeson, and his committee down there are, are pushing hard. And that's a July 4th kickoff or tee-off, I should say. So from a, you know, this has been such a unique year for Irish golf and having the Open and obviously the Irish Open has, you know, really come up in prestige um, over the last number of years. Would it have been better, in your view, if they had a run in consecutive weeks, particularly with respect to the field um, and, you know, people travelling in from American golfers in particular to set to base themselves in Ireland for, you know, 10 days as opposed to maybe the challenger of the, the, the two-week break? Well, I think that the challenge there for the European Tour is that they've obviously got um, contracts in place with both the Irish Open and the Scottish Open. Um, and both of those are Rolex series events which mean that um, the, the tour will have those planned years in advance and there'll be a reason for the sequencing that they have. Um, but what I expect to happen is that there will be players who come and play in the Irish Open who perhaps don't journey over to Scotland to play in the Scottish Open um, this year. And there'll be a number of people who uh, will, will rock up at uh, Portrush the week before the Open to get extra practice in. It's something we see every year, sort of immaterial of the fact that uh, we're in Ireland this year. But I think the fact that a number of, of high-profile players will want to play at La Hinch um, and ultimately will be coming over to play the Open will mean that some of them may choose to actually take that week off in inverted commas and come and, and practice uh, in relative peace and quiet up at Portrush before the, the huge crowds start to descend. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair point. And just, just a question, a more broader question, golf in general in terms of, of, and I'm sure you're well aware of this in terms of the challenge and you know trying to engage with younger audiences and stuff like that. What's your view on how golf is doing to attract a younger fan base and I suppose what kind of formats should it look at even in terms of broadcasting but also you know what's your view on some of the kind of shorter form formats as well well it's the kind of $64,000 question this one um, it's, it is challenging I think for all sports uh, at the moment partly because there is uh, so much more competition than there was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, add into that the time pressures and uh, uh, family pressures that are different because of changes you know, in, in the sort of societal context in which we live. And all of that adds up to a, sort of a challenging environment for sports to be perhaps as successful as they were 20 or 30 years ago. That, that all being said, you know, we're still seeing very strong interest in, um, in the Open Championship and in our suite of, of professional championships from a younger audience. Um, I think the frequency with which people can expect uh, golfers to, to play versus other pursuits is inevitably going to, to reduce down because of some of those pressures that I mentioned. But I, I think the appetite, the fandom for golf is still there. We haven't seen any kind of drop-off in that under-25 um, demographic. But one of the reasons that we have introduced that policy of free camping for under 25s, they already see a half-price ticket when they're in that category. And if you're under 16, you can come for free to the championship. You know, we've had that policy in place for a number of years now, very much with a view to reducing the barriers for entry to, uh, to attendance at our championships. 
Um, on the playing side of things, I think it's, as I say, it's a challenge, but golf does need to make sure it's as welcoming as possible for families, um, for, for women as well as men, because ultimately both parents will have a role in introducing kids to golf. And one of the challenges that golf has definitely had down the years is that perhaps golf club environments have not been as welcoming as they could. And I think it's not so much format for me, although we are big proponents of, of nine-hole and reduced-hole formats. I think it's much more about what kind of environment does golf want to, to set around the culture of, of venues that people can visit, because if it's family-friendly and welcoming, that's going to be a real step in the right direction. Yeah. Malcolm, just in, going back to Brexit for a moment, a lot of talk about a hard border and, and so forth in the event of a, a no-deal Brexit. and security uh, issues that might flow from that? Are you having to take uh, some extra security measures this year because of Brexit and because of the potential that maybe somebody might uh, decide to use Port Rush and the Open Championship as a, an opportunity to, you know, showcase their cause in relation to a, a, a no-deal Brexit? Well, I mean, on the subject of security, you know, we have very, very... Um, detailed planning in place every year for the Open because it is a global sporting event and there is always the risk that, um, that as you say, somebody sees it as a, a target for, for making a statement of some kind. Um, we will have extensive security plans in place for the Open at Port Rush, but no more so than we would for the Open at any other venue. Um, I think the, the uncertainty of Brexit clearly is... Um, is an issue, as I said earlier, and we would love to see some certainty around around that as soon as possible. I think we are all realistic at the same time that that certainty doesn't seem to be coming anytime soon. But it does feel like with the, the 29th of March approaching, there is going to have to be a clearer position than there certainly has been for some time as to the direction of travel. Um, we hope that... Um, the way that Brexit rolls out um, won't cause for any escalation of any frustrations um, that um, that might lead to, to the environment in which we stage the championship becoming more difficult. But in terms of the security around the event, as I say, we put very extensive plans in place every year and it'll be the same in 2019. Yeah, what's your own view of Brexit? <laughs> Probably too long, uh, too long to share with you on this <laughs> podcast, but needless to say, you know, the, this. I think I, I speak for... Uh, plenty of people across uh, across my uh, peer group when I say we just want this to, to be resolved and resolved sensibly as, as soon as possible. All right, now we mentioned earlier it was 1951 when it was last played in Northern Ireland. What are the chances of the tournament coming back more regularly to Northern Ireland or perhaps even someday being staged in the Republic? Well, in terms of Northern Ireland, um, it is very much part of our discussions with Tourism Northern Ireland that we will return. Um, it's a question... I would suggest of how quickly we return rather than whether we do. Um, the the question of um, the Open ever being played in the Republic of Ireland is, is not one that's really been discussed formally. I'm sure that some discussion will be had within the media around this year's championship. It seems the kind of logical extension, um, you know, the question will be asked. At the moment, it's not something we have a position on, um, but we're we're just very much looking forward to staging this championship at Port Rush and making it a huge success. Okay, and finally, Malcolm, before we let you go, we have to ask you about uh, who's your fancy to win this year's <laughs> Open Championship from 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 five months out. <laughs> well, from five months out, he surprised all of us by very nearly winning the Open uh, at Carnoustie last year, and then obviously went on to win his first tour title in 
I think it was over five years, which was Tiger Woods. And, you know, he is still the biggest draw in our sport. It would be fantastic if he can bring real form into Portrush. Um, but I think the winner that probably every neutral would love to see would be Rory McIlroy. Um, you know, he hasn't won a major himself now in several years. And to win it at, um, you know, probably the most iconic course in, in his home country and um, a course that he famously kind of shot 61 on as a, as a very young player. I think he was 15 at the time. Uh, it would feel like everything had gone full circle if he was able to lift the claret jug for the second time and uh, return to Portrush. So that would certainly be a fairy tale story. It certainly, it <coughs> certainly would. Okay, I think we'll leave it there for now. Malcolm Booth, uh, thank you for joining us and good luck with uh, the remaining preparations and hopefully it'll be a great championship. Malcolm, good luck and we'll pray for four days of sunshine and a, a tight, tight finish on the Sunday evening. Thanks very much. Pleasure Cheers. To to you. Take care. Cheers now. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Research was by Kieran McSweeney of Teneo PSG. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. And I'm Mick O'Keefe. Until next time, take care. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.